You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Great to be with you all today. What's up, 11 o'clock? Happy to be with you as we finish our series today. Welcome everybody online. Our scripture readings will be today from Genesis 1, Mark 16, and Revelation 21. I'll be your reader. Here we go. Genesis 1, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Mark 16. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything New. And that's the reading of God's words today, all his people said. Amen, amen. Hey, welcome everybody again. Uh, with all apologies here as I get going to any non-Christian guests here today, I have two completely insider questions to ask of all the Jesus people here. Here they are. Let me ask you this. Where does your Bible begin? Where does it begin? Second question, where does your Bible end? Now let me ask these a little bit differently this time. How does your Bible begin? Like what to talk about? Secondly, how does your Bible end? What's it talk about? Hmm. 1967, UCLA professor Dr. Lynn White dropped this bombshell paper. It still has lots of ramifications on our modern culture today and how people think about the Christian faith. The, The paper was called this, The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. The historical roots of our ecological crisis. And as far back as 1967, he was looking at challenges that our planet faces. Things such as deforestation, soil erosion, species extinction. And he said basically this. What is ruining the earth is the Christian faith. He looked at Christianity, texts we just looked at, Genesis 1, we'll come back to. And he said this, Christianity naturally and inevitably leads to the exploitation and the ruin of the world. And he summed it all up like this. He said, quote, both our present science and our present technology are so tinctured, that's a $25 word there, with orthodox Christian arrogance towards nature that no solution can be expected from them alone. We shall continue to have a worsening ecological crisis until we reject the Christian axiom that nature has no reason for existence 
save to serve man. All right. Here's my question. So is he right? Is Lynn White right? Always nice when you can rhyme every time. Is Lynn White right and others? Is that what the Christian scriptures say? Is the Christian faith incompatible with creation care? Well, if your Bible only begins with the fall of people, and if your Bible only ends with the resurrected Christ and an empty tomb in the Gospels, yeah. If your Bible only begins with sin in Genesis 3 and ends with that empty tomb in the Gospels, then perhaps yes, but if your Bible begins, and I'm suspicious that it does, with plants and animals and nature and creation, and it ends with plants and animals and nature and new creation, how might that not only affect how you live, but how we view Christian mission? All right, welcome to our last week of Lost and Found. We're looking at the ways in which we're lost and the ways in which God comes looking for us, Jesus finds us, and so far we've seen that in the Bible's story, we are lost, people are lost from God, lost from themselves, lost from one another, and today we're seeing that fourth and final loss that we're also lost from creation. And I hope you've seen in this series that the Christian faith has powerful, moral, spiritual, emotional, intellectual resources for helping us be reconciled to God, ourselves, one another. And so in the same way, I'd like to argue today, the Christian faith, the scriptures have the same kind of resources to connect us, help us be found with creation. All right, so that's the question. How can we be found with creation and not lost from it? We'll do it by embracing four resources the Bible gives us about creation. First, we're gonna see creation is good. Second, creation has a covenant. Number three, creation is fallen. And finally, God has good news for creation. Creation's good, it's got a covenant, it's fallen, and there's good news for it. Let's see these in turn. Number one, creation is good. All right, back to our first reading, Genesis 1. God creates the world. Hooray. While we're here, one line is said more than any other. It says, and God saw that it was what? Good, yeah, some version of this appears seven times in the chapter. Why? Well, this isn't like God standing back, patting himself on the back saying, you did a really good job there, you know, big guy. Or like, hey, the elephant, nice job, or blue, what a great concept. No, it says, it doesn't say that God saw that he himself was good. No, it says that God saw that It was good. God said this, the light was good. The land is good. The water is good. Plant life is good. Animal life is good. People were made good in in and of themselves. And the last time the phrase is used, the seventh and final time, a new word is introduced as the capstone. It says, and God saw all that he had made, and it was what? Come on. Very good. Good, very good. Yeah, which means this for you and for me. It means for us to look at creation now and to want to keep it that way is a good thing. To keep it very good is a good thing. That's actually part of why God made us, by the way. You know, your first mission as a human, the first mission God ever gave humanity was actually to keep the earth very good. Stuart Pym, Dr. Pym, no, not the guy in Ant-Man, different Dr. Pym, all right. 
This Dr. Pym is a professor of conservation ecology at Duke University. He's an activist on behalf of endangered species. And not only that, he is a committed Christian. He was interviewed not too long ago by the New York Times, and he was asked this. Have you had, in your work for helping endangered species, have you had any successes lately? And he said this. He gave two examples. First, on the Golden Coast of Brazil. He said he had been working to save the golden lion tamarind. We've got a few images. It's so cute. You want to take one home. Yes. It's an endangered primate about the size of a house cat. Recently, with the help of local conservationist groups, he said, we purchased 270 acres of cattle pasture that separated two pastures of their habitat. The former pasture is now being retreed, and the two areas will soon be bridged, and soon it will be possible for lonely heart lion tamarins to meet members of the opposite sex and to go forth and to multiply. Another South American nation, he said there was a lot of illegal logging that had been going on. Why? It was because a local sort of godfather, mob boss type there had been getting paid money to allow a company to illegally deforest the area. But Dr. Pym says this, uh, my friends and I promised to give him a bit more money if he stopped the logging. I may burn in hell for purchasing protection, but it helped the animals and the local indigenous people who were not subjected to a whole lot of bad things. In terms of what we got for the money, it was a very good deal. At the end of the interview, this sort of a surprising question was asked by the New York Times reporter. They asked him, are you religious? And he said, oh, I'm a believing Christian. And then he quoted John 3, 16. God so loved the cosmos that he gave His only son, he said that's an injunction from St. John. To me, this says that Christians have an obligation to look after the world and steward it. We cannot pointlessly drive species to extinction and destroy forests and oceans. When we do that, we are destroying God's creation. That said, I'm not a vegetarian. I like a good steak now and then. (laughs) Got a sense of humor. What does this mean? It means two things. It means, first of all, people like Lynn White and others like him are wrong. Scientists like Dr. Pym actually point to their Christian faith, scriptures, and theology as the very reason for getting involved with caring and stewarding for creation. And number two, it means that Dr. Pym has read and internalized Genesis 1. We're supposed to care for God's world. Come on, some of you grew up singing the hymn, right? This is my Father's world, right? Because it is very good. You're saying, Morgan, hey, well, doesn't Genesis 1, I thought we read it, doesn't it say that humans are supposed to rule over the earth? Yeah, let's look at that. That's the Hebrew word rada for rule, which is the same word used, guess what, to describe how God rules, how God rada. So how does God rada us? Does he rule like a cosmic tyrant? Does he drive us to extinction? Does he exploit us? No, Psalm 145 tells us how God radas. The psalm is addressed specifically to my God, the king. How does God the king rule his world? It says the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Should we rada any differently? Shouldn't we be good to all, have compassion on all God has made Yes, because it is very good. Chris Wright in his theological sort of treatise called The Mission of God sums it up like this. Human dominion over the rest of creation is to be an exercise of kingship that reflects God's own kingship. The image of God is not a license for arrogant abuse, but a pattern that commits us to humble reflection 
of the character of God. That's number one, creation is good. How else does the Christian story and scriptures help us be found with creation? Number two, it's by seeing that creation also has a covenant, that is, a covenant with God. This is fascinating, I think. In Genesis 9, you may know the story. God, Noah, ark, flood. What does God say to Noah as he's exiting the ark? It says, then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with, look at this, every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. What's that? God's making a covenant not just with Noah, but with every living creature on earth. Yeah, and God repeats those words, every living creature, four times in the passage. What does this mean? It means God is promising to save creation. That's what covenants are for. They're salvific. Oh, but wait a minute. God's promising to save creation from what? Has creation sinned? No, creation did not rebel against its creator. Who did? We did. Humans did. So if God isn't promising to save the earth from its sin, whose sin is he promising to save it from? Well, yeah, ours. God's promising to save creation from us. Why? Because creation has a covenant with God. Which means this, to get involved with loving and rescuing creation is to enter into the world from the very heart of God himself. Someone who's trying to do this, I love this story, is a man named Joel Salatin. He runs Polyface Farms in Virginia. Maybe you've heard about it. I think he was on Chef's Table, if you've seen that series. He's trying to change the way that our food is produced. He refuses to use techniques like Massive hormone injections, confinement of animals, farming that erodes the soil and groundwater, and farming that relies on lots and lots of synthetic pesticides and toxic chemicals. How many of you like your side salad with toxic chemicals? I don't. So I appreciate his work here. By the way, I said side, you notice, and not the centerpiece. Thank you very much. He's not sentimental about what he's doing. He's definitely not a vegetarian. He knows he's raising animals for food, and yet he does this in his own words by learning from, hear this, and attending to the patterns of symbiotic life, knowing how different species each work best with the other and making use of those patterns rather than imposing on creation an industrial or market efficiency model. All right, it's a mouthful. Here's how it works. Cattle eat grass from the pasture, but only from a limited section each day. Then the next day, the portable electric fences are moved. The land rests. Hey, does this sound like Leviticus? Yes. The cattle go to another patch. Then the eggmobile is brought out, and all the laying hens are put on the patch that the cattle ate yesterday. They do what chickens do best, which is to rummage through all the manure looking for food. And in doing so, they stimulate the grass growth. It makes a great hay crop. The cows are not fed corn, but fed grass as they were intended to eat. They're not stacked up in confinement in their own waste. Therefore, they do not need hormone or antibiotic injections that are common to a lot of our beef production. As a result, they don't produce the deadly strains of E. coli now that float around in our beef supply and, as I've heard, down in Hamilton Pool. All right, just letting you know. Ugh. The chickens, meanwhile, are not shut up in confinement. Therefore, they don't peck 
at each other due to stress. They're free to roam. The fields, the land doesn't require synthetic or toxic pesticides. Farmers who visit Polyface Farms are routinely baffled by the fact that he doesn't use those. He treats his animals extremely well. After the cattle leave, he lets the pigs out to rummage around in the manure and look for fermented corn. A party for the pigs, apparently. All right, why does he do this? Not in spite of his Christian beliefs, but specifically because of them. His own Facebook page says this. We are, look at these words, in the redemption business, healing the land, healing the food, healing the economy, healing the culture. Let me show you how much healing that's taken place. There have been 14 foot deep gullies that have been filled with soil creation. That's amazing. And there's the best part of it all. Chefs restaurants throughout Virginia, Washington, D.C. can't get enough of his meat and his eggs for their restaurants because they simply taste better. They don't have to worry about food poisoning or recalls. Jill Salatin put it like this. Industrial food production has no room, his opinion, for kindness or mercy. It's all about maximizing the bottom line. Fields and animals are put through the stresses of confinement and forced feeding. Fields are subjected to a regimen of fertilizer and pesticide, all which take a huge toll on creation. But in the dance of creation that is Polyface Farms, the fields and the animals play off each other's strengths. There's room for failure and acceptance because each member of the dance can be itself. As the proverb says, The righteous man, woman, cares for the needs of his animal. New York Times Magazine, the greatest title ever for an article, The High Priest of the Pasture, put it like this. Joel Salatin admits that his views are way too Christian for most environmentalists and way too liberal for most conservatives. So is Lynn White right? Is the Christian faith incompatible with creation care? No. Joel Salatin, because he's a Christian, not in spite of it, has managed to make both the earth and your eggs better. Number three, third resource we have to be found with creation. It's also crucial to see this, that creation is also fallen. Go back and read Genesis 3. You talk about the fall of humanity. You'll notice that there's one subject God talks about the most. The losses of creation. On and on, God goes. About what? Thorns, thistles, pain, toil, labor, sweat, brow, ground, land. Why? So we won't miss it. There's more ink spilled about lostness from creation than any other area. He's telling us creation itself got lost and suffers. But here's my question. Let's turn the argument around. If, again, you're here, you're a secular person, you're not a Christian, and you would say, well, hey, you know, I agree. Ruining the earth is bad. Let me ask you, why? Why? Why is it bad, for example, if some species just go extinct? Like, think about it. Isn't that how we got here? Hmm? Didn't Stephen Jay Gould, the late great paleontologist, say the only reason humanity is here is because we have managed by hook and by crook to survive while others didn't? Why shouldn't species go extinct? Like, it stinks to be them, right? Isn't nature red in tooth and claw? Isn't nature, which what we're a part of, and animals, which is all we are, if there is no God, Isn't that just about the survival of the fittest? The strong eat the weak. We've crawled to the top of the food chain. We're supposed to dominate the weak. Like, isn't how all of this just works? Oh, I thought Lynn White said that the answer to ecological challenges was to get rid of Christianity. But if you get rid of faith in general and the Christian faith in specific, all you have left 
is atheistic nature. Darwinian mechanisms, which is dog eat dog. There are no moral rules. We're just doing what nature does. So what authentic reason beyond survival, that's not morality, that's an instinct. What authentic reason does a person have for getting involved with caring for the world? There is none. Oh, but Christians have the best reason of all. We understand from Genesis 3, the earth is fallen. Things in the world, things in our bodies don't work like they should. And because God one day will heal the world and make it new to be like him is to go into the places in the world where there is sickness, suffering, lostness, decay, and work to heal them like Dr. Pym, like Joel Salatin, maybe like some of you. Think about it. When Jesus Christ came into the world, he claimed to be over and over God come in the flesh. So what did God come in the flesh, do with stuff like diseases, viruses, plagues. Oh, in John chapter 11, Jesus stands before the tomb of his friend Lazarus, killed by some kind of disease, some kind of virus, perhaps, some kind of plague, as it were, because creation is fallen. And what did our Savior do? He stood in front of the tomb of his friend, consumed by a fallen world, and he raged at it. He snorted, he wailed at the loss of life from his friend and he used all his power to undo the death. And Jesus, he didn't notice, he didn't say, well, Lazarus, nature's red in tooth and claw. The virus got you, it was superior to you. No, he got involved to undo the fallenness of the world and because Jesus did, to quote our song today, now we can, yeah. C.S. Lewis put it like this. You must believe that God is separate from the world and that some of the things we see in it are contrary to his will. Confronted with a cancer or a slum, the pantheist, that's someone who believes everything is God, nature is God, Christians do not believe that, the pantheist can say, well, if you'd only see it from the divine point of view, you would realize that this is also God. The Christian replies, don't talk damn nonsense. Christianity thinks that God made the world, that space and time, heat and cold and all the colors and tastes and all the animals and vegetables are things that God made out of his head as a man makes up a story. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. Why? Because creation is fallen. Fourth and finally, how can we be found with creation? It's by seeing this, that God now has good news for creation. Excuse me, let me try to, excuse me, close this series and this sermon with this single final point. Follow me. Most Christians would know this scripture, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I'm gonna put it on the screen here, yeah. How many of you recognize this scripture by a show of hands if you'd be so kind? Okay, thank you, yes, you should all. If not, after today, if I ask the same question next week, it'll be 100%, okay. Therefore, it says, go, and make disciples of all nations. Great, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Awesome. Now, some of us might know what this scripture is commonly called. It's commonly referred to as what? The Great Commission, yeah. And it is great. And it is a commission. And we should love it and do it and live by it. Mosaic tries to embody this. We send people out, start churches, send out missionaries, but there's only one problem. Jesus never called it that. He did speak these words in Matthew, but he never called it. 
his great commission. There was actually a label given to it by a wonderful 19th century Christian organization to catalyze movement around the world. And it's a wonderful commission in one gospel. But how many gospels do we have, class? Come on. Four, thank you, Pastor Barnabas. <laughs> How many Gospels do we have, class? Four, yeah. And did you know that each of them has a unique commission given by Jesus near the end of his life? Why? Because we have four Gospels and four commissions. And how many ways have we seen the Christian scriptures say that we're lost? Four. What if there were four Gospels with four commissions to heal the four lost? Oh, let's try to connect these dots right now. Consider, this is Jesus' commission to his followers in Luke at the end of the book after he's raised from a dead. Resurrection Sunday. Then he opened their mind. They could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And look at this. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. So what does Jesus commission them to do? What? To preach repentance. Why? It's because of the first Lost. People are lost from God. We need people called to preach, called to call people to repentance. This might be some of you. Oh, but what about Jesus' commission in Matthew's gospel, the one we just read a moment ago? That commission mentions other things, things like teaching, discipleship, obeying God's word. Why? Because people are, number two, lost from themselves. And we find ourselves most when we live for God first. We need to be taught how to obey God. And we need people, therefore, called to teach, make disciples, do Christian counseling and other things. This might be you. What about John's gospel? The third loss. These are Jesus' words, his commission to us in John. And Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you, commissioning you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not. Oh, what's he doing? He's commissioning them to go out and forgive? Why? It's because people are, number three, lost from one another. And forgiveness brings us back together. We need, therefore, reconcilers, justice bringers, advocates who create spaces for reconciliation and forgiveness between peoples. Maybe this is you. What about the final gospel of our four, Mark's gospel? How does that gospel end? Here's Jesus' commission. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all what? Come on. Creation, yeah. Every living creature. Why? People are lost from creation. Now imagine if we didn't have Luke or Matthew or John and we only had Mark. How might that influence our view of Christian mission? Hmm? Well, what does good news to all creation even look like? I want to tell you. It looks like how, to go back to the beginning, how your Bible ends, not with destruction of the earth as atheists say is inevitable. It doesn't end with escape from the planet as Eastern faiths say. No, but it ends with the renewal of the earth, the recreation, the gospel of Revelation, basically. Revelation says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. That's a reference to danger. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write it down for these words are trustworthy and true. Hear this. The Christian vision is that heaven's power comes down and makes all things new. 
that the golden lion tamarind lays down with the lamb. <laughs> that steel mined from God's very good earth isn't made into more bombs and bullets, but into tools that feed and bless and heal. See, a gospel for every living creature is this. It's looking at the very good world God has made and saying, God made you. He has compassion on you. And Jesus died to save and redeem and make you new as well, which means we can begin to partner with God in that, in our mission right now. Does that sound a little like foundness? I think so. There are four gospels, church, with four commissions to heal the four losts, to bring foundness between people and God, themselves, one another, in creation. We need the whole Bible for the whole world, do we not? And that's what we try to show you in this series. That's what Christian mission, Mosaic mission, is all about. We take a moment and pray for you here as we begin to close. Father, we come in Jesus' name and we ask you to help shape us and form us into people who have answers, who steward the world well, steward ourselves well, steward our resources well out of desire to honor you and love you and bring glory and honor to your name. We thank you for empowering us as a church in this, in increasing ways. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.